0: Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We'll be beginning John chapter 4, and we will, in sev- for several weeks, be looking at John 4, particularly with what biblical evangelism is, as demonstrated in the life of Jesus. So i draw your attention to a free book on personal evangelism that you can come and claim. After the service, I'd also ask special prayer for Mike Anderson, Pastor of Bethel Baptist Church in Independence, his son, um, 15, 16-year-old son, was burnt over half of his body um, on Friday, and um, we'll be in the hospital in Iowa City for three weeks, and so Mike won't be able to preach, at least I know this morning, so uh, pray for his son and pray for that congregation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the deep, deep love of Jesus that is vast and unmeasured. Father, I pray that you'd pour your love out on Mike as his son suffers in a hospital, that you would protect him from infection, heal his body, use this suffering to give Mike and his family an opportunity to further the gospel. I pray for Bethel, that you would supply them with a a man to preach the gospel in Mike's absence, that this would be a time of growth for them as well. Father, we, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the love of Jesus Christ that would come from heaven to earth, that He would take upon Himself flesh and human nature to become tired and worn out and persecuted and slandered and beaten and suffer, and that He would die for our sake to redeem for You a people from every. Tribe and language and people and nation on earth so that you could receive glory from these worshipers who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, we pray that that would happen this morning, that as we examine Jesus and what He came to do and how He spread the gospel, that you would instill in us a love for the gospel that reaches all peoples of all nations, of all classes, that You would make us people like Jesus. Father, pour out Your Spirit and gift me this morning with everything I need to preach Your Gospel. And gift us with every grace that we need to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would imagine that for each of you, there is a person or persons that God has put in your life. Maybe they live in your neighborhood. Maybe they work in your building. Maybe they're just friends or acquaintances. And if you associate with that person, it will be very uncomfortable. It might sap you of your energy and your strength to reach out to them. It might cost you your reputation. Maybe even among the more spiritual people in your neighborhood or in your church. You might lose your friends or your health or your safety or your life. It might involve breaking social and uh, traditional taboos to form a relationship with them, to reach them with the Gospel. It would be easier to avoid this person or these people. No one would blame you if you did. In fact, some people who are viewed as spiritual would congratulate you for avoiding these people. And you would have a higher reputation in the mind of spiritual people for not dealing with these untouchables. And these people desperately need the Gospel. They might look differently in each of our lives, but they're there And it's easy to avoid them. And the question I want to ask you is, do you interact with them? Do you initiate a relationship with them? Or do you bow to pharisaical pressures, formulate your excuses, and avoid them so that you can have a better reputation in the eyes of spiritual people or in the eyes of your friends or the world, and you let them go without the Gospel? Over the next several weeks, I want to spend these weeks, looking at John chapter 4 and seeing Jesus the evangelist. I want to see the message that Jesus preaches, the person that Jesus preaches the gospel to, and what He's willing to go through to get the gospel to those that He was sent by the Father to save. And I want two things to happen. First, I want us to see who Jesus is so that we might believe in Him and by believing in Him, we might have life in His name, which is the goal of John's Gospel. And I want you to specifically see that Jesus is the Messiah who was sent to bring the gift that God was to give to the world. So He's the bearer of God's gift and He is the Savior of the world, bringing eternal life to whoever will believe in Him. And second of all, I want you to see In Jesus, an example of Jesus doing missions and evangelism. So that we as a church and as individual Christians, you and I can learn how to imitate Jesus and be more faithful in our calling to go and make disciples of all the nations of the world. Let's begin with verses 1 through 3. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Galilee. Now we read in chapter 1 how the Pharisees had sent representatives to go and investigate John. John was having a growing ministry. The Pharisees were concerned about this ministry, so they sent someone to find out about him. And now we learn that Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John was. Now if they're concerned about John, they're going to definitely be concerned about Jesus John clarifies that Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptizing, but his disciples were. Nevertheless, it was Jesus' ministry through which the disciples were baptizing these people, and they were becoming apparently disciples of Jesus. And this drew the attention of the Pharisees. Now, Jesus and John were not popular with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not saying, good, people preaching the kingdom. This is, this is, this is what we're interested in. They were fearful of John and Jesus because John and Jesus did not clear their teaching through the Pharisee-approved school of the rabbis. They didn't appeal to teacher so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. They didn't go through the rabbi's group. They just preached on the authority that had been invested in them by God and bypassed the Pharisees. They preached the need of repentance for all people, even the Jews, to enter the kingdom. John says to the Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's not popular. The Pharisees are the, the spiritual elite, the pure of the pure. And John and Jesus say, you need to repent. And likewise, they used baptism as an initiatory rite of repentance into the kingdom And they used that right for Jews as well as Gentiles. They didn't just say the unclean Gentiles need to be baptized, but you Jews and you Pharisees need to be baptized. And all of these things threatened the teaching and the authority and the position of the Pharisees. And so they had to do something. They were antagonistic against Jesus and against John. And it's interesting to see how Jesus often responds... "...to those who oppose His ministry." In John chapter 7, we are told that they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. And in John chapter 10, we read, "...again they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands." When they came to arrest Jesus, Jesus ran away. Because Jesus knew that He had come to be arrested and suffer and die at a particular place and a particular time. And so if persecution threatened the ministry for which he was sent, he ran away. He fled. He went to a different region. And then when the time came for him to suffer and die, he stepped forward and he said, I'm the guy you're looking for. And didn't call down a legion of angels to free him, but he suffered and died. He kept the gospel central to whether he ran away or whether He endured suffering. What is going to accomplish the purpose of the Gospel? Something similar is happening here. The Pharisees are learning about Jesus making and baptizing more disciples. And the Pharisees, in going after Jesus, might draw premature and unwanted attention to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want His identity to be prematurely revealed. At the end of John chapter 6, they want to come and make Him king by force. So Jesus runs away. He came to be king. But it wasn't his time. And so he leaves. And the Pharisees could arrange right now to have Jesus arrested and killed by the Gentiles. And this isn't Jesus' time to die. So he, he flees to another region. In other words, what I'm trying to say is apparent or possible persecution or maybe even active persecution was the impetus that drove Jesus to go from Judea to Galilee, and in the process, He had to pass through Samaria. And as a result of traveling through Samaria, He reveals who He is and what God has to offer to a Samaritan woman who believes in Him and goes and tells a village full of Samaritans who come and meet Jesus and they believe in Him. So what has persecution done in this chapter? Persecution is a tool that God uses to spread His gospel throughout the world. And that's a pattern that begins with Jesus in John 4 and is repeated by the church in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, they stoned Stephen. And we read, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea And Samaria, same region, except the apostles. And then in Acts 8-4 we read, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so Jesus gets persecuted, he has to leave Judea, and he preaches the gospel in Samaria as a result. In the book of Acts, great suffering comes upon the church, they have to leave Jerusalem, they're scattered through Judea and Samaria, and the gospel is preached. In these reasons, because of the suffering and the persecution. And that's something that happens throughout church history. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Paul told the church in Acts that through many tribulations, through much suffering, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's the only path to get there. And so this pattern finds its root in Jesus. Persecution is the tool that God used to move Jesus through Samaria so that an entire village could believe in Him as the Savior of the world. And one immediate application this has for us is, do not fear suffering. Don't fear suffering. God uses pain to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. That doesn't mean suffering is less suffering. It still hurts just as much. Persecution, sickness, death is just as painful. But we can trust that God, just as with the crucifixion, works through these things to bring Himself glory, to bring His saints good, and to take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. And so don't fear suffering and persecution. We read in verse 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, some interpret those words, had to. He had to, to mean He had this divine constraint. The Holy Spirit constrained Him so that He had no other choice, no other option. He had to go through Samaria. Well, when He was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit, the Bible says the Spirit led Him into the wilderness. I don't think that's the best interpretation. We don't see anything else to support that here. A better interpretation comes from simply looking at the geography. Jesus has been in Jerusalem, which is in Judea for the Passover. And in Israel, Judea is a southern region, Texas. And uh, he's going to Galilee, Minnesota. And Samaria would be Missouri. No offense to any of you Missourians. But to get there, he has to pass through geographically, he has to travel through Samaria. And so just geographically speaking, he has to pass through there. Now many popular commentaries and preachers will say that it was the Jews hated the Samarians so much that rather than travel through Samaria, the short route, they were more willing to pass over the Jordan once Travel north up the other side of the Jordan and pass back over the river a second time, going around Samaria, almost doubling the length of their trip to get to Galilee because they hated the Samarians so much, the Samaritans so much. I haven't found any historical evidence to support that, and on the contrary, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that lived right after the time of Jesus, actually said that there was strong evidence the Jews hated the Samaritans. But they preferred the short route through Samaria. They just didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans. They just made their business and got through as quickly as possible. So I think the simplest interpretation is the best. Geographically speaking, Jesus had to go through Samaria to get to Galilee. Now John is obviously emphasizing the Samaritan setting. He's taking pains to show us this happens in Samaria. And the woman says, I'm a Samaritan woman. And we learn that a woman from Samaria comes to the well. John wants us to know this is in Samaria. Why is that important? What is the relationship between Jews and Samaritans? Well, hundreds, Samaria was not a separate political state. It wasn't a separate country, but there was historic and religious divisions between the southern region of Judea and the people of Samaria. And hundreds of years before, Israel became a divided nation. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, King Omri was reigning and he bought a hill, which he later named Samaria after the man that he bought it from. And he built there a fortified city. And it became the capital city of the northern kingdom. And the region took upon the name of the city, Samaria. Samaria. And sometimes the whole northern kingdom was called Samaria. Well, in the year 722, almost 750 years before our passage this morning, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom and they overthrew it. And they took all the citizens of substance who were educated and prominent and rulers and so forth, and they exiled them, they deported them to a foreign land. And the same thing they did in the Soviet Union, and they do in many countries today when dictators take over, they brought in foreigners from five different countries to live in the region. And by intermixing the people and their religions and their ethnic backgrounds, they weaken the ethnic identity so the people are less likely to rise up and overthrow this new government. Well, as these foreigners were brought in, they brought their own gods with them. And they started to worship the god of the land, Yahweh, but they were synchronistic. They combined the worship of Yahweh with the worship of their foreign gods. And so what resulted was some type of folk religion that was less than what the Old Testament called for. And when the exile was over and these Jews who were deported got back into the land, they viewed the Samaritans with disgust. They viewed them as the descendants of, of, uh, of political rebels... They saw them as half-breeds because they were half-Gentile, half-Jews who had a tainted religion that was impure and they wanted nothing to do with them. They hated them. And the Samaritans, as I said, developed their own folk religion. They accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, but they rejected all the prophets. They rejected everything that comes after the first five books of the Old Testament. And Moses told them in those first five books to look for the mountain on which the Lord was to be worshipped. And so they believed that was a mountain revealed in Deuteronomy. And that would be Mount Gerizim. And so they built a temple there. And several hundred years later, after they built this temple, Judea from the south comes up and destroys their temple. And so you can see the hatred building between the Samaritans and the Judeans. They just rub each other the wrong way. And they want nothing to do with each other. And this builds for hundreds and hundreds of years. So there were these strong ethnic and political and religious divisions, these barriers, these gulfs that existed between these two people groups, the Jews and the Samaritans. And they wanted nothing to do with each other. Well, so what's the significance of Samaria in this passage? As Jesus does evangelism? Well, to borrow the language of Revelation 5.9, John is showing us that the Gospel is for every tribe and language and people and nation. The Gospel is as much for Samaritans as it is for Jews. John has been giving us a pattern in the Gospel so far. Jesus begins by gathering a close ring of followers, disciples, and then where does He go? He goes to Jerusalem where He reveals who He is in the temple. And then he goes out into the countryside and preaches about who he is in Judea. And now Jesus is moving to Samaria. And at the end of chapter 4, he heals an official's son who is a Gentile. So John is showing us a pattern of Jesus preaching about who he is in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to all the nations of the earth. There's a progression here. And it's highlighted in this chapter when the village says, we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Jesus came to save people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this has application for the church. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The church is going to follow the pattern of preaching the gospel that is laid down by Jesus in the first four chapters of the book of John. Now, what other application does this have for us as a church? First of all, we should intentionally take the gospel to all the nations. Our goal, we want to see as many people as possible saved. But it is less than biblical to simply say, we want to see as many people believe the gospel as possible. There is a particular commission given by Jesus, go and make disciples of all the nations. The church should strategize to get the gospel into every people and language and nation and tribe on earth. And we should be looking and seeing as mission agencies... Which people groups don't have the gospel? And pour our funds in there. It's interesting that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those gospels end with a specific command of Jesus for His disciples to take the gospel to all of creation, to all the nations. John doesn't give us that explicit command, but I think that's because the idea is woven into the entire fabric of John's gospel. It's just there the whole way through. To see that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so Jesus is setting an example of what an evangelistic, missions-minded church and believers should be doing. Being intentional about taking the Gospel to all the people groups, all the nations of the world. A second thing that we should do is we should glorify Jesus. We should glorify Jesus. And we should clarify the Gospel by intentionally magnifying the multi-ethnic nature of the church. Jesus is not afraid to take the gospel to Samaria and to interact with Samaritans, even to stay in one of their villages for two days, teaching them about who He is, which clarifies He's the Savior of the world. The fact that the church... The believing people of God consists of people from every tribe and language and people and nation is a major theme in the Gospel of John and it's a major theme in the rest of the New Testament that we can't neglect. First of all, it is what Jesus is glorified for in Revelation 5.9. In heaven, they don't just sing to Jesus, you're a great Savior because you saved a lot of people. They're specific in their praise song. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In heaven, Jesus is specifically glorified and worshiped as being a multi-ethnic savior who saves people from all the peoples and all the nations and languages and tribes. Furthermore, the multi-ethnic nature of the church is essential to the Gospel. Matt discussed in his Sunday school class this morning Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul talks about how God has revealed to him the mystery of Christ. And he says, what is the mystery of Christ? In Ephesians three six, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. The mystery that is revealed in the Gospel is that the non-Jewish believers have an equal standing with the Jewish believers. They have the same promise. They have the same inheritance. They are one body. You remember in the temple... In John chapter 2, there was a court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles couldn't go into the temple to worship with the Jews. There was a literal wall built that epitomized the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul says that wall has been torn down through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. By dying for the sins of all the people groups of the world, Jesus makes them one new man, Indivisible body of Jews and Gentiles. John clarifies this in John 1 9. I think he's writing and speaking primarily to Jews there, and he says, Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath on our behalf for Jews' sins. And not for Jews only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died as a sacrifice on the cross to satisfy the sins of of a people He was purchasing for God from every tribe and language and people and nation on the face of the earth. And so if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I don't care what ethnicity you are. If you're not a Christian, I don't care what country you come from. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He died on the cross to purchase people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And He is the only Savior of the world. And so you may believe in Him, You are invited to believe in Him. You have freedom to believe in Him. And you must believe in Him. It is obligatory on every one of you here this morning. Jesus is the only Savior. And you must repent and believe on Him. And I would invite you to do that right now. Well, if the mystery of Christ is that believing Gentiles and that Samaritans like this woman... Are engrafted in with the believing Jews to receive the same inheritance as one body, as fellow heirs in Jesus. If this is a theme of the gospel, then to confuse or downplay or deny or diminish or dislike the multi ethnic nature of the gospel is to confuse and downplay and deny and diminish and dislike the gospel itself. And we must avoid anything that does that. Well, now in verses 5 through 6, we read that Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. It's near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. It's near where Joseph was buried when his bones were brought back from Egypt. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Now, we're going to speak more next week on the significance of this well and it being Jacob's well and what it says about Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to the last half of verse 6. It says that Jesus was wearied from His journey. And He was sitting beside the well, probably because He was thirsty. Jesus got tired. Jesus got thirsty. In John 19, when He's hanging on the cross, He says, I thirst... In Matthew, when he's in the wilderness fasting, Jesus was hungry. Here, when Jesus has been traveling for probably six hours, and the hours were counted from sunrise, so it's about noon. If the sun rose at six o'clock, it's the hottest hour of the day. Jesus' body is worn out. And he's thirsty. And what this tells us was, Jesus was and is a human being. John is clear in the first chapter that he is God. He is fully God, but He is also fully man. And He had the limitations of human flesh. He got tired. And He got wore out. And He got wore out doing ministry. So the second thing I see from this, there's no command here, I think just an example from Jesus, is that being a minister of the Gospel is tiresome work. We see frequent times in the Gospel where Jesus tries to withdraw into other regions or out onto the lake, and the crowds just hound Him. He wants to get rest. He's tired. He sometimes leaves villages with people unministered to. There's no command here. There's just an example. Jesus got wore out, and He got tired doing the work the Father gave Him to do. Taking the Gospel to all the peoples of the world and all the peoples of Cedar Rapids will be tiresome, wearisome, body-tiring work. And you might think, well, the pastor's talking about himself. No, I'm not talking about pastors and evangelists and missionaries. Because every one of us is a minister of the gospel if we're believers. And we will get wore out spreading the gospel. And that's not a bad thing all the time. There are times for rest, there are times for sleep, there are times for recreation. Jesus shows us all of those. But Jesus was so insistent upon doing the will of the Father and spreading the gospel to the nations of the earth, it was more important to Him than food and sleep. It'll be tiring work to be a Sunday school teacher or a parent or a spouse or a neighbor or a coworker who's trying to take the gospel to people. Bringing up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord day after day after day after day, month after month, year after year, is going to wear you out if you do it right. And be willing to be wore out to give your children the gospel. Teaching Sunday school on Sunday mornings is going to mean you sacrifice an evening or two. To dig into God's Word and prepare a lesson for your class. And it might mean you have to sacrifice some recreation or some TV and movie watching. It is worth it. People need to be built up in the Gospel. Be willing to sacrifice temporary pleasures for the Kingdom. It will be wearisome work to invest in a relationship in that annoying co-worker who just saps your patience at work. But it's worth it to get him The Gospel. It'll be tiresome work to come home after a long day at the office and you want nothing more than to watch Survivor and drink a Coke and go to bed. It'll be tiresome and you will not want to go out into your yard and help your neighbor rake leaves and get to know him so you can share the Gospel. But you need to do it anyway. Be willing to get tired and wore out. You have to know what your balance is. You can't neglect the ministry to your family or your spouse. But you need to be willing to get tired. To wear yourself out for the glory of God. I would just challenge you. Don't use your energy if you're young or your money and your freedom if you're retired to invest in pleasures and store up recreation on earth where age and memory will make it fade away. Use your freedom and your money and your energy to invest in the kingdom of God where your reward will never wear out for eternity. Let's move on to verses 7 through 9. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's interesting that the Samaritan rejects Jesus because he's a Jew. And a few chapters later, the Jews will reject Jesus saying he's a Samaritan with a demon. He just gets rejected by everybody. That's part of being Jesus and his followers. What we see in these verses is a seed that will grow in the rest of the chapter. That the gospel is not simply for every people group which we've established. But the gospel is for every class of people within those people groups. It's for women. It's for outcasts. It's for the poor. It's for the uneducated. We read in verse 8, Jesus' disciples have gone away to buy Him food. Disciples were entrusted with the care of their rabbi. And this woman comes to the well to draw water and Jesus says to her, Give me a drink. She says, why are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? And John clarifies for us, Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. And that word for having any dealings with someone is literally a word that says you don't share dishes in common. In this society, the way that you showed friendship with someone is you shared a meal. You know, in the Middle East, you share a cup of tea. You have someone in your home, you share your dishes And Jesus didn't have anything to draw water from the well with, so that meant He had to drink water from her water jar, a Samaritan outcast woman. And Jesus is more than willing to drink from her water jar. These verses show us that Jesus crossed ethnic and cultural and gender and social and religious boundaries, gulfs, fences, To take the Gospel not just to every people group, but to those of every class within those people groups. This woman is a Samaritan. I've explained why the Jews hated the Samaritans and vice versa. But she's not just a Samaritan. She is a Samaritan woman. Shortly after Jesus' time, the Jewish leaders will codify a law that says that Samaritan women are classified as menstruants from the cradle, quote-unquote meaning that they were perpetually, always, ceremonially unclean. A Samaritan woman could never come into God's presence. And if you touched one or haven't had any dealings with a Samaritan woman, you were unclean and could not come to the temple to worship God. And Jesus says, Let me drink from your water jar, Samaritan woman. The Jews found Samaritans and Samaritan women disgusting. But that wasn't a requirement of Scripture. This was a self-imposed law that the Jews formed. They went beyond the Bible to try to protect purity. And Jesus has nothing to do with building man-made fences around the Gospel. Jesus has nothing to do with this secondary separation with the Jewish purity scruples, with self-imposed extra-biblical regulations. He speaks to the woman. He's willing to share her dishes. The Word of God is His standard for purity and not something that man has written. And this woman was not just a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman, but she amongst them was a social and moral outcast. It was common for women in these days to go together as a group socially to the well to draw water. And they would usually go early in the morning or later in the evening when it wasn't so hot. The fact that she comes by herself, and these were big water jars you carried on your hip or your shoulder, and she comes at noon, the hottest part of the day hints to us that she is a social outcast. And we'll find out later in, the, in this chapter why. And Jesus knows at this point why. It's because she is a serial fornicator. She doesn't have a husband she's living with, sleeping with, having sexual relations with a man that's not her husband. And this is the sixth guy in a row that she's been sleeping with. She is in deep moral sin. Maybe you're there this morning. And She is an outcast because she is a moral failure. And the, the own people of her own village won't have anything to do with her. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knows her moral state. He knows the social taboos. He knows what this will do to His reputation. And He talks to her anyway. Someone should have told Jesus He was going to ruin His witness. Don't we usually mean by that you're going to ruin your reputation with the spiritually elite? Jesus was witnessing. That's what He was doing. If they want to call Him a demon-possessed drunkard, an immoral man who talks with Samaritan women, let the Pharisees say it. But He will be a witness to the Gospel. This is a perfect demonstration, I think, of the condescension of God. Him coming down to sinners. His grace he comes to the unclean, to the poor, to the outcast, to the rejected, to save them, to clean them, to make them true worshipers of Himself. It's not the healthy that need the doctor, it's the sick. And Jesus seeks the sick out, even if people hate Him for it. Jesus is not content to take the Gospel to the Samaritans, but to the worst and lowest Class of the Samaritans. Notice what we see when we compare the beginning of John chapter 3 with the beginning of John chapter 4. We have two characters here. We have Nicodemus and we have a Samaritan woman. And Jesus talks to them both, and they are as different as night and day. In fact, Nicodemus came at night to protect his reputation, she came at high noon because she had a bad reputation. He has a name, Nicodemus, she remains nameless. He is a Jew, she is a Samaritan. He is a man, she is a woman. He is a Pharisee, she is an outcast. He is the teacher of Israel, she is likely uneducated. He is the ruler of the Jews. She is powerless and without influence. He is respected. She is despised. He is orthodox and theologically trained. She is steeped in folk religion and error. He is meticulously, ceremonially pure. And she is a serial fornicator on her sixth sexual partner. And she believes in Him. And Nicodemus fades out of the picture. She brings people to Jesus. And he hides ashamed. Of his possible belief before the other Pharisees. It shows us that God chooses the weak and shameful people of the world to be the citizens of his kingdom. They are as different as night and day, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, and they both need the gospel. You know what Jesus shows us here? Jesus shows us that theology is practical, theology produces action. When you understand the nature and the goal of the Gospel, of God sending His Son because He so loves the world, it changes how you act. It influences who you share that Gospel with. What we do and how we act as Christians and as a church, especially in missions and evangelism, is based on what we believe about the Gospel. Christian life flows from your understanding of the Gospel God sent His Son because He loved the world. Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Jesus knew that if anyone wanted to see the kingdom of God, they had to be born again. And so because Jesus knows His gospel mission, He acts in accordance with it. And He preaches to the Jew, to the Samaritan, to the Gentile, to the respected, and to the outcast alike. Because they all need the gospel, and they all need to be born again. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, they all come to be an inheritor of the promise to Abraham through faith. This also has an immediate application for us. First of all, show no partiality in evangelism and missions. Show no partiality in evangelism and missions unless you prioritize the unreached people groups of the world. We cannot pick and choose to whom we take the gospel. We cannot say, this person, they are just disgusting societally. The church would look down on me on shame. If I went to where they're at and I shared the gospel with them, I would be rejected by some people. You can't do that. Because that doesn't flow from the gospel. If we want to reach the world with the gospel, it will mean that we have to be around people that make us uncomfortable. We will have to break non-biblical taboos and be associated with people that will make us unpopular with the Pharisees. Second of all, show no partiality in the church. Show no partiality in the church based on ethnicity or class. Think of the example Jesus is setting for us here and how it illustrates what James writes in James chapter 2. Listen to James 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And when Jesus illustrates the point of loving your neighbor as yourself and someone says, who is my neighbor? Who does he pick? But a Samaritan, a good Samaritan. If you show partiality based on ethnicity or on class in the church, who you pick to serve, who you pick to fellowship with, who you pick to hang around and have conversations with, who you welcome in with enthusiasm and who you just say, well, it's good they're here. That's a matter of the gospel. Whether or not you live it out as a body. If we secretly want, and I think if we search our hearts, I know there's, it's there in my heart sometimes. If we secretly want to be a comfortably white, white collar, educated, middle to upper class church, and therefore we give preference to those who fit that mold, we are eroding the gospel. Ask yourself, when someone walks in as a visitor on Sunday morning and and one set of visitors is wearing a suit and a tie and some jewelry and has their hair combed nice, and another set of visitors comes in wearing a sweatshirt and some shabby blue jeans, which one do you say, yeah, I hope they stay? I want to get to know them. Which one do you say that about? Do you show preference based on class in the church? Or as you look for people to serve? As leaders or servants in the church, do you say, well, this person has been successful in business leadership, so we want to put them in church leadership, as though the standards of the world are the standards of the church? Or do you say, what has God done spiritually in the heart of this person, no matter what they look like, dress like, or make? That's an important question that reveals what we believe about the gospel. And in all these things, in these first nine verses and in the rest of the chapter, Jesus is showing us who He is. He gets tired and worn out and He's persecuted and chased. A sufferer comes to mind. And He is the one who carries the gift of God. He brings the gospel to Jew and Samaritan and Gentile. He's a servant, so maybe you could call Him the suffering servant. Who takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's the Messiah who brings the gift of God to all who will receive it. And Jesus is giving us a great example that we can follow as people and as the church. He is willing to be persecuted and worn out to take the gospel to all the peoples of the earth. And He's willing to cross uncomfortable boundaries to save those the Father has given to Him. Are you willing to do the same? Who will be your guests in your home at your Thanksgiving feast? those who can pay you back or those who can't. I want to invite you to come tonight and watch the movie A Candle in the Dark. Read through the little insert on the life of William Carey. And I want to give you an assignment for the movie tonight. Don't just come be entertained for an hour and a half. I want you to look through these questions and ask these questions about William Carey. How did the life and mission work of William Carey imitate Jesus Christ in John 4 and illustrate That controversy and suffering serve to spread the gospel? How does William Carey show us controversy and suffering serve to spread the gospel? How does the life and mission work of William Carey show us that the gospel is for every tribe and language and people and nation? How does the life and mission work of William Carey imitate Jesus Christ and illustrate that the spreading of the gospel is tiresome and painful work? And how does he will illustrate that the gospel is for every class of people? And then when you've asked those questions and answered them, ask yourself this question. How should my life, how should my family, how should my ministry do the same thing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this record Of Jesus Christ and His ministry on earth. Thank you for the promise He gave us that the world would treat us like it treated Him so that we're not surprised. Thank you for leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done so that we can be gifted and empowered for this difficult work. Father, I pray that this morning and always we would turn our eyes upon Jesus. And that we would find in Him both our gospel and the example of how to spread the gospel. Give us hearts of humility and a willingness to suffer for the sake of Your Son and the salvation of all people. In His name, Amen.